Hundreds of thousands of people from ethnic minorities, including the Uyghur community, are being forced by the Chinese authorities to pick cotton in the far western region of Xinjiang. I did raise issues around human rights, particularly as it relates um, to Xinjiang. For two years now, the BBC's reported on camps like these in western China, where about a million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities have been detained without trial. Absolutely acknowledge the human rights issues that exist for the Uyghur people. You seem reticent to kind of lay the blame at China's feet. No, no, not at all. In fact, as I've said, I raised the issue directly with the Premier and with the President. Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan. And today on The Detail, New Zealand treads a trading tightrope with China, our most important economic partners. The government has future-proofed their free trade agreement with China, bringing it up to date for another 10 years. The Minister for Trade and Export Growth, Damien O'Connor, signed off the upgraded FTA in a virtual ceremony yesterday. From time to time, we even try to play peacemaker. Um, look, I can't speak for Australia in, in the way it runs its diplomatic relationships, but clearly if they were to you know, follow us and, and show respect, I, I guess a little more diplomacy from time to time and, and be cautious with wording, um, then, then they too hopefully could be in a similar situation. The Prime Minister has responded to a prickly suggestion from New Zealand that Australia should be more cautious and respectful of China. We've got to continue to maintain our vigilance over this, and to do that we've got to stick together on this stuff. But are we selling our souls for $32 billion a year in two-way trade? The United States levelling perhaps the most serious charge a country can face, accusing China in the last hour and a bit of committing genocide and crimes against humanity in its repression of Uyghur Muslims. You've probably heard a lot over the past few years about China's alleged treatment of the Uyghur people. So... As a starting point, I asked my colleague, RNZ's World Watch presenter Perlina Lau, to take us through the 101. So the Uyghur people are mostly Muslim Turkic ethnicity, and they consider themselves to be culturally and ethnically close to Central Asian nations. So they also have their own language, which is also called Uyghur. The majority of Uyghur um, people live in Xinjiang in China, so the autonomous region, and there there are about 11 million people, and so that's the majority of them. But they also live in Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and several thousand in Australia. What does autonomous region mean? Right, so firstly, Xinjiang is in northwestern China. Uh-huh. Usually an autonomous region means that you have a bit of self-governance, you have a bit of freedom from external authority. But like Tibet which is also an autonomous Uh region, they have that sort of in theory, uh, but in reality the province doesn't have that much autonomy. They are still part of China. Okay. When did China assert itself over Xinjiang? bit complicated because the region has had intermittent uh, independence and autonomy. So it came under Chinese rule in the 18th century. And then in 1949, uh, there was a bit, independence was declared, but it was very short-lived. And so later that year, it then officially became part of communist China. My understanding is that Xinjiang um, historically has been this kind of desert region. There isn't a lot in the way of natural resources. That I believe has changed now because precious metals and things have been discovered there. But like, mm. is there a rationale for China wanting that territory? Well, it's a region that has always focused on agriculture and trade, and they thrived in the 
during the Silk Road route. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for China, you know, territorial integrity for them is hugely important. They really value that. And also China doesn't want, uh, you know, expression to the contrary. Mm. So for them, it's very important that Xinjiang is part of them. Yeah, okay. So China is basically of the opinion, you know, Xinjiang is our territory, great, um, that this is the way that it is and that it is going to be forever and ever and ever. However, the occupants of that part of the world are like, we're not Chinese, we are Uyghur. Is that kind of the situation? Well, it's it's not so simple because yeah. the Uyghur Muslims are, you know, they are one of China's officially recognised minorities, of which there are 55. In the last two decades, there has been flare-ups with the Uyghur people. In Xinjiang, as I said to you before, there were about 11 million Uyghurs living there. Uh-huh. There's been a lack of political unity over in recent centuries and, you know, ethnic tensions have been caused by economic and cultural factors which have been the root of recent violence and flare-ups. So uh, there's been huge development projects in the region. What that has done has attracted a lot of Han Chinese. And so that's sort of your traditional Chinese. It's about 92% of most people in China are Han Chinese. And so you've got people moving into that region for these projects and for work. Now, what Uyghur people are saying is that Han Chinese are being given the best jobs. They're being given the majority um, of the jobs to do, you know, well economically. Um, And this is, to a degree, fueled resentment among the Uyghurs. In 2009, there was a flare-up in which uh, 200 people, mostly Han Chinese, were killed and around 2,000 people injured. The official party line here today, the situation is under control. But when we ventured out into this ethnically divided city, we discovered a disturbing scene. A mob of Han Chinese armed with sticks and bats viciously beating a Uyghur man before turning their anger towards us, outraged by what they call bias foreign coverage of recent events. So it's after this that the crackdown on, on Uyghur Muslims sort of began, or increased rather, and following that 2009 outbreak, Violent incidents continued to occur, including suicide bombings and sort of knife-wielding incidents. And so China has said, you know, that they're trying to sort of stifle dissent and they're trying to – that Uyghur Muslim people have extremist views and pointing to, for example, that flare-up. Part of the crackdown from the Chinese authorities has been, you know, shootings, arrests, jail sentences. So there has sort of been instability for the last – you know, for the last few decades. This hasn't happened overnight. The the influx of Han Chinese into Xinjiang um, has also been characterised in some areas as, you know, the idea that uh, it's almost like trying to dilute the Uyghur population or presence in Xinjiang. What is alleged to be happening in Xinjiang to Uyghur Muslims? Why is it a big global story? Beijing has been accused of slowly curtailing you know, religious, commercial and cultural activities of the Uyghurs. And the way they see it and what it looks like to them is that Han Chinese people have been encouraged to move into that region. Uh, they've been, in some ways, there's been incentives, you know, to, to take jo- their jobs for them. There's farmland and farmland has been confiscated uh, from the Uyghurs. So now in this region, the Uyghurs themselves are a minority among the Han people. 
And so this this created sort of anti-Han separatist sentiment among the Uyghur people and that, you know, led to the flare-up of violence. Um, and so in 2017, uh, President Xi issued a directive that religions in China must be Chinese in orientation. And, you know, this is further cracking down on the religious practice of Uyghur Muslims. Mm-hmm. And in Xinjiang, as part of this crackdown, there are, you know, there's a huge network of surveillance, there's police checkpoints, you know, scanning number plates, scanning faces, and the government says that this is necessary to combat separatist violence in the region. Some were detained because they had applied for a passport, they had relatives abroad, or had unintentionally landed on a foreign website while searching the internet. Others were detained because they used to grow a long beard, or used to wear a veil, or because they had a minor religious infection. Some were guilty of violations of birth control policies, or simply being an untrustworthy person. China is being accused of detaining up to one million Uyghurs across 85 camps in the region. Now, China had always denied this, but in 2017, images of camp construction with watchtowers and barbed wire came out. These could be seen on satellite images. And it was at that point that the government admitted to saying, oh, yes, these are re-education camps. This is one site we're trying to get to, a giant re-education camp. But more recently, something else has been built next door a textile factory. Days after its completion, a large group of people can be seen being moved between the camp and the factory. Now, over the past few years, more than a million Uyghurs are thought to have been detained in so-called re-education camps. In response to the latest evidence, the Chinese government has told the BBC that claims of forced labour are entirely fabricated. So they're saying that Uyghurs hold extremist views, there's vocational training... Rights groups say that in the camps, they're made to learn Mandarin Chinese, to criticise or renounce their faith. And there's been, uh, you know, for example, the BBC have obtained first-hand accounts of former prisoners talking about psychological and physical torture in the camps. Uh, recently, there's been reports of sterilisation of women, forced sterilisation, forced abortions. More recently, the BBC have obtained first-hand accounts from several women and workers saying... Women in China's so-called re-education camps have been systematically raped and tortured. That's according to first-hand accounts obtained by the BBC. <laughs> They were three men, not one, but three. They did whatever evil their mind could think of, and they didn't spare any part of my body, biting it to the extent that it was disgusting to look at. Families have said that their, you know, their family members have disappeared, uh, and detainees have said they've been ta- physically tortured and mentally tortured. And so these are all allegations that have come out, uh, and various of news networks have obtained this information. Here is international relations professor Al Gillespie from Waikato University. This is not a new situation. I mean, with China, ever since Islam came on the scene in the eighth century. There has been interactions within what we now call China and Muslim populations, often with different uh, dynasties, trying to have uh, assimilation. When we look back in history, when do these tensions really start to reach a, a, a point that has led us to today? The, the tensions predate communism. The, the tensions go back a very long period and sort of... The, the, 
Well, I've just completed a book on, on the causes of war, and I've been looking at the the period between the, the 16th and 19th centuries and the desire of various Chinese administrations to assimilate people into one identity is is not a, a communist discovery. This is a long-standing problem. It's just that with communism, it's become much more important to make sure that the collective is strong and there's not so much separatism. Okay, so Xinjiang is this kind of area of China in the northwest. The Uyghurs have, and many other minority ethnic groups, have occupied this area for some time. And at some stage in the 20th century, China has what essentially laid claim to Xinjiang. And rather than embracing the fact that different people from different backgrounds are going to be living in there, what China has decided to try to assimilate people from different ethnic groups into what they see as being the Chinese culture. As I understand it, and with what information you have, but in many ways this idea of the collective identity is not specific to any one particular region. Mm. Okay, yeah, so it's just China as a whole wanting to be what? To to, to, to be effectively the collective that communist China is, and, and through that entity they have to their credit, achieved a large amount of advances in terms of the, the social advancements, the, the cultural, the economic changes, in many regards, have made China a very different country to what it was in 1949. But often those changes that have been good for the collective have come at a price for the individual or for different ethnic groups that have a separate identity. Now... This might seem a bit clinical to some listeners, but it does make a certain sense from an academic point of view. Purely on the numbers, the scale and scope of China's modernisation is objectively astonishing. In 1960, China's GDP was about 59 billion US dollars. That's barely a tenth of the size of the US economy. In 2020, just 60 years on, it's more than 14 trillion. That's an increase of about 23,000%. According to the World Bank, it lifted more than half a billion people out of poverty in the 23 years between 1981 and 2004. Genuinely amazing achievements in a country of a billion and a half people. But does that mean the world can just turn a blind eye to these human rights allegations? And if not, what noises should New Zealand be making? Well, on this particular issue, and you must remember that in the last couple of months there's been a diversity of issues, whether we've been talking about the South China Seas, whether we're talking about Hong Kong, mm-hmm. it, it, whether we're talking about the World Health Organization and COVID-19, that, that China has been in the media a lot, and the five eyes have often been on, on the opposing side. New Zealand, as we're, we're part of the five eyes, but we're we're the slowest member of the Five Eyes to be critical of China. And often when we are critical, we we tend to make sure that our language is more softer or nuanced than the other four. And the other four all have a particular beef with China, which is often much more direct and much more forceful than what we've got. We're, we're, We're the outlier here. And so although we have on this particular issue made a point of view known, we do so in a way which is quieter than the other countries. And so our, our view, New Zealand view, is that, yes, independent experts going in is, is the way to go forward. But we're not at the forefront of that debate. You mentioned that New Zealand is in a slightly different position to the other partners to the Five Eyes. Is that because we have such close economic ties with China and we are reliant on them? 
the way the position is operated changes a little bit between which administration's in power. And if the administration in power in New Zealand is slightly more aligned to America than the alternative, then we can be a little bit more outspoken in our views. But even then, we're not that outspoken. We are hamstrung by our economic dependency on China right now. And, and, and it's not just the economics. I mean, in many ways, we have a very good relationship with China, not just in terms of money, but in terms of exchange of students and hopefully exchange of cultural ideas. And there's a lot of good things that can be between the two countries. But when it comes to, to criticism of China, we feel a reticence which is becoming increasingly obvious. And so the recent comments that we were mentioned earlier um, with Damien O'Connor the other day, um, look, I can't speak for Australia in, in the way it runs its, its diplomatic relationships, but clearly if they were to you know, follow us and, and show respect, I, I guess a little more diplomacy from time to time and, and be cautious with wording, um, then, then they too hopefully could be in a similar situation. We get an upgrade to the free trade deal and then the next day we say, uh, you know, you need to be a little bit more softer with your dealings with China. It's not a good look. It, it's, I don't think it's a quid pro quo. But the, it's, a, it's a terrible coincidence of timing to get a benefit in one hand and then be critical of our good friend Australia on the other. Your article in the conversation emphasises the need to get independent assessors into China. There is also an interesting article in The Spectator from last week, January the 23rd, and that article strongly endorses global economic pressure and economic sanctions on China as a way of getting it to pay attention. What do you think about that and, idea? And, and, I think if we've got evidence that genocide exists or something even close to genocide, like an extreme crime against humanity, we have an ethical obligation not to trade with that country because it's not possible to actually have an economic relationship with a country which is involved with the mass destruction of a group of its own population. It's just ethically wrong. You can't do that. But so what other countries are doing right now, because most are scared of that scenario and, and I'm not saying it's happening, I'm definitely not saying it's happening, but we do need the evidence but what, what other countries are doing now is they're saying well maybe the next step is, is if we can't get to actually get China to change its own way is that we'll have trade embargoes or we'll have restrictions on being able to trade within that particular region of China the, the challenge with that is that it kind of assumes that you can all the products that you import from China are only made in one region hmm. When in fact, what would start off as a trade restriction on the one part could quickly escalate to other areas. This is also, though, tied into how America's going to respond, because in many ways we're just bit players in this much larger game. And how Biden responds to China is as yet unknown. Initially, it seemed that they were that the new administration was willing to endorse the findings of Trump, but they may be backtracking on that. But how America responds will implicate how other countries respond. And you're probably likely to see Australia much closer to the American position than New Zealand will be. And I think New Zealand will take a slower approach to make sure that we, we don't try to antagonise our most important trading partner. Al Gillespie advocates for the rest of the world to put pressure on China to open itself up and prove what it's been saying, that there's nothing nefarious going on. Without such proof, he argues, drastic action is premature. Even if there's a lot of smoke, you have to lay eyes on the fire. 
Other commentators have less patience or less optimism. They call for outright explicit condemnations and trade embargoes. But there's another wider and maybe more unsettling question. Do we care? Because if we don't, there's no need for our government, which represents us on the world stage, to demand proof of no wrongdoing and to act if none is forthcoming. And if you just want that new Fisher & Paykel fridge, which is made in China, or you rely on a paycheck from a Chinese HQ, or you just want to sell your milk powder, maybe the forced sterilisation of Uyghur Muslims half a world away is something you'd rather not think about. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell and thanks to Polina Lau and Al Gillespie. Matewa. <laughs>